Okay, this morning we're going to go back to 1 Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 2. We started this chapter a couple of weeks ago, 1 Peter chapter 2. We are looking at the doctrine of the church in this chapter and the, the illustration that Peter gives of the church as a building or a temple. In fact, this passage is probably one of the clearest and most foundational descriptions of the doctrine of the church, helping us understand what it means and how it works. So we're going to read chapter 2, starting at verse 4. We did some of these verses last time, but we're going to read 4 down through verse 10. So chapter 2 of 1 Peter, starting at verse 4 and reading down through verse 10. The Bible says, if we can get a chapter 2, there we go, sorry, to whom, <coughs> excuse me, to whom coming as unto a living stone, a disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient. Whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not been, obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy." <clears throat> Let's stop there. We'll have a word of prayer before our message this morning. Father, thank you again for your word and for the truth, not just that it is in it, but that it is. Lord, we know that these are your words spoken by you to us. It is the things that you want us to understand and to learn from, to guide our lives by. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guide us as we study this passage. Help us to see your idea, your plan for the church, what it should be, and what we should be as parts of that church. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would just guide us now. Lord, I need your spirit, so fill me with your spirit, please. I pray that you would give me power, voice, and mind, and body. I pray you give me strength and wisdom as well, that I might speak your words and not my own opinion, so that your truth might be proclaimed today and we might learn and be challenged by it. Lord, may you use us, use me during this time, do your work in each one of us, we pray. And may you get the glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, Peter starts chapter 2, and he's talking about believers, and he says that as believers were to lay aside things that define the old nature, and he goes through that list, and he says, as newborn babes, then we should desire the word of God in verse 2. So that is the basis of our individual spiritual growth, is that we have to seek God in his word. We have to look and have a desire for God in his word in order to grow, because we, verse 3 says, because we have tasted that the Lord is gracious or that he is good. 
The goodness of God is made known to us in many different ways in our lives as believers, and we'll see it more and more if we keep our eyes open. But it's based on that goodness of God that we've experienced that drives us to continue to grow and to continue to seek Him. And then it says in verse 4, where we started reading today, to whom coming? And it means to the Lord, obviously. We have just tasted that He is good, and so we continue to come back to Him as a living stone. The living stone, then, is the foundation stone, which we saw a couple weeks ago in this passage. And we looked at how Jesus Christ becomes the foundation, not just of our Christian lives, but of the church as a whole. It is everything that is the church is built on Jesus Christ. You cannot have the church without Jesus Christ. And so he is just not just the foundation, but the cornerstone of the foundation, that first foundation stone that is set, that sets the design, that sets the plan, that sets the direction for everything that comes after him. And so we saw that that Jesus as the foundation stone then sets the precedent and sets the foundation for everything that we are as the church. But there are those who reject that. The Jews specifically as a nation rejected Jesus as their foundation stone. And there are people today who also reject Jesus as the foundation of their life. And what we saw is that just because you reject Jesus doesn't mean he goes away. It is that foundation stone of Jesus Christ who will eventually become the foundation stone of judgment in those people who reject him. And eventually they will be crushed under him in that judgment. And so all of that is in these verses that we've read regarding Jesus Christ as the foundation of the church. And so we have that first point, the foundation stone, the living stone who is Jesus Christ. But then Peter in verse 5 makes this uh, this uh, point, he said, you also, talking to us, us as believers, he says, you also as living, lively stones or living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And we're going to focus on that verse specifically today because as we saw the foundation stone in Jesus Christ last time, Today we're going to look at what we are in the church. We are living stones that are used to build up that spiritual temple that Christ is building. Now, what is difficult for many people to understand or accept is that when you look at the basic concept of what Peter's talking about as far as the foundation of the church and how the church is built, the structure and function of the church, he uses two very clear Old Testament Judaistic analogies. And so it's hard for many people to understand that even the modern day church, what we call the New Testament church, much of its foundation or much of what we practice, much of what we do, and much of what we believe originates in Old Testament Judaism. Peter makes that point here in saying, if you want to understand the church, we have to look at the Old Testament temple to understand that. And if you want to understand how the function of the church is supposed to operate, then we have to look at the Old Testament priesthood that operated within that Old Testament temple. Now, it's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison, but the Old Testament is given to us by God as a picture and as a type of what we are to be as a church 
And so the temple represents the New Testament church. The priesthood represents New Testament believers and how we are supposed to function. We're not then bound to do all of the sacrifices and all of the rituals that God outlined in the law, but that law and the Old Testament practices gives us a picture and at least the principles by which we are to operate as the New Testament church. And so here we see an example of the church found in the structure of the Old Testament temple and a description of our service in that church as compared to the Old Testament priesthood. Now, even more amazingly when you think about this is God is not concerned as much about the building that was the temple as he is about the temple which is the church, the people. And if you think about it, Pentecost was the beginning of the church. That happened, and I'm you know, just taking a rough estimate because historians can't give you the exact year, but let's say about 34 or 35 A.D. Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed about 35 years after that. So the physical building that the Jews revered and held up as the center of worship was gone. And what was left was the people of God, not a building. And that's what Peter's trying to show us here. It's not about a building physically. We, as the people of God, have become the temple of God, where God dwells and where the functions of worship happen. And that's the picture that we need to understand here. And so he starts off and he says, we are made the living stones that make up God's temple, the church. It's not a physical building, it's a spiritual temple that we are all part of. So Peter says, when we're saved, we are built into the walls of this building, of which Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Now I mentioned last time, without Christ, there is no church. You can't have even a group of people who say they're saved, and if Christ is not at the foundation, at the center of everything they do, that is not a church. It may be a group of religious people who believe and act the same way, but without Jesus Christ, there is no church. So we are built upon Jesus Christ. The eternal life that you receive at salvation is not your own eternal life. It's not God pouring out a little bit of eternal life into each one of us. We have eternal life because Jesus Christ is the eternal life and we live in his life. So apart from him, not only is there no church, but there's no eternal life, there's no salvation, there's no hope, there's no future of anything. So we are the living stones then, Peter says, because we are built upon the living foundation stone of Jesus Christ. That's the cornerstone. Then in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see that the foundation of the church, and we have the foundation stone of Christ, but the foundation of the church then is built upon the apostles' doctrine or the teaching of the apostles. What was the focus of the apostles' teaching? Jesus Christ. But the apostles were put in place and given inspiration by God so that they would set down the foundational truth that would be what we believe as a church or as the church. So we have Jesus as the foundation stone. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 and other passages says that the, the, the teaching of the the apostles about Christ becomes our foundation for the church. And then we, as living stones, are the walls. I mean, think about 
how a stone building is made. You have a foundation stone, then they build the foundation or pour the foundation, and then on that foundation, they start setting the stones. And that's the picture Peter wants us to get. We are those stones that are set on the cornerstone of Christ and the foundation of the teaching of Christ by the apostles. And, it, and we're called living stones here. And he says we're being built up as a spiritual house or temple for a holy priesthood. Now, there's other passages that teach us that when we're saved, each of us is made individually into the temple of God, okay? And I want us to understand that so we get the bigger picture in expanding that idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says in verses 16 through 17, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, that the Spirit dwelleth in you. We each are temples. There is not a building where worship happens, okay? We are the spiritual building where worship originates. And so Paul says, we are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwelleth in us. Now, the temple, and it's interesting that Peter uses the word in the Greek house here in this verse, but it's the dwelling place of God. For the Old Testament Jews, when they erected that temple, and Solomon being in charge of that project, he had a dedication prayer when that was finished, and he prayed that God's presence would dwell in that temple so that they knew God's presence would be with them. And when they went to that temple, they literally were entering into the presence of God. Well, it's not about a building. See, that's the, that's the whole point. It wasn't about a building then. The building represents the spiritual temple. So we now, as individual believers, are become the temple of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit lives and dwells. And when you think about that, it should change your perspective of what you do with your body and what you do with your life. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, Paul goes on, he says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? In other words, you don't own your body. It is the temple of God now. It is his dwelling place. He says, For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You don't own it anymore. It has become the property of the Savior who died for you to redeem you. And since he has bought you with a price, you don't own this physical body. It all goes together. It's not just a saving of your soul. God now owns all of you. And eventually, he will redeem and glorify this physical body when we go to heaven. But we are those, that temple now. Each one of us has the Spirit of God living in us. But Peter takes that analogy that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, and he wants us to get the bigger picture. We're not just individual temples where the Spirit dwells, but we all together make up the larger temple of God, the singular temple. <clears throat> Paul teaches this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. He's talking about... Um, the, the fellowship that unbelievers have or can't have with believers, okay? And he says in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 6, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, talking about all believers, he says we are the temple, singular, not we are each individual temples. He says we are the temple 
of the living God. And just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So not only does the Holy Spirit dwell in us each individually, the congregation of the church, not this physical church, but the congregation of all saved believers becomes the temple where God dwells. It represents God's temple or God's dwelling place. So we, one people, become one temple because we are one people under God or, or through God. Now I want you to jump down to verses 9 and 10 in 1 Peter chapter 2 here. <clears throat> because Peter continues to emphasize this point, that we are one, okay? We have to get that point here. We are one in Christ, not one believer. We are one church. Look at verse 9, he says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He gives us the same message that Paul gives us when he says, because you are bought with a price, you're supposed to glorify God with your body and with your spirit. But Peter here says, you are a chosen generation. He uses several statements about what we are as one, okay? Not each of us, but all of us. And look at the words he chooses. You are how many chosen generations? One generation. Now, is that true? Did all believers come from one generation of human beings? No, obviously not. Okay, the church started way back, 34, 35 AD, and it's been in, in the process of being built over the last 2,000 years. And yet he says we are a chosen generation. One. So it doesn't matter what generation we were born in or what generation we lived through. In Christ, we are made all one generation. Look at the next phrase he uses, a royal priesthood. Now, that's an interesting phrase, and he elaborates that later on in verse 5. But he says, we are a royal priesthood. Now, how many of you are royal, first of all? You're born into the line of kings or even Israel's king. Nobody? Nobody. Okay. How many of you are priests? Because you're a Levite, and so you've been appointed in the temple as, well, there's no temple, so there's no priest right now, right? So in the Old Testament, um, the law that God gave Israel, only the Levites and only specific Levites were allowed to be priests. In fact, if you were a proselyte and came into the Hebrews wanted to live with them and live like them and worship their God, which many people did, there was no way you could even go into the inner part of the temple to worship where the Jews did. There was an outer part of the temple that you had to stay in. So you weren't even allowed past a certain point into the temple. And yet Peter here says, we are all priests. Now, is everybody that is part of the church a Jew, first of all? No, we know that's not true because very early in the book of Acts, Peter sees Cornelius, he was a Gentile, he was saved, then several other Gentiles were saved, and then the Apostle Paul had a specific ministry to the Gentiles. And very quickly, the church became more Gentile than it was Jew. And yet, Peter says here, we are all a royal priesthood, excluding none of us. 
because in Christ we are made one. It doesn't matter our nationality. It doesn't matter our background because we are made new in Christ. Now we all have become one priesthood, all working together. He goes on, a holy nation. Now, even within our congregation, if you go back far enough in your lineage, we probably have a dozen more or more uh, nations represented in our congregation. Okay, my family came from Germany. My mother's family came from England. Um, you know, you could probably trace back to European countries or other countries in the world. If you go back to the beginning of the church, though, let's talk about Pentecost. Remember at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon those first 120 believers, and immediately they started praising God, and as they went out from that room, they were praising God in different languages. And there were people there in Jerusalem, because of the time of the year that it was, from all different countries. And in Acts chapter 2, in the, the account of Pentecost, it says that when those people started speaking in different languages that were filled with the Holy Spirit, 15 different nations were represented, specifically, and they name them, 15 different nations, and people from every single one of those nations became part of the church. And yet Peter says, we are one nation. What does that mean? Well, Paul explained that. He said, when we become saved, when we are believers in Christ, you're no longer Jew or Gentile. In fact, you're no longer man or woman. You're no longer slave or free. We are all one in Christ. And so our nationality is not American. Our heritage is not necessarily German or European or whatever. As a believer, we are the church, one nation. He goes on, he says, you're a peculiar people. Now, the term people actually crosses national boundaries and even religious boundaries. The term people, as used in the Greek here, was used in reference to people who had a common uh, something common in their lives that brought them together. It could be a hobby. It could be a political agenda. It could be, you know, whatever, athletes. But they were called a people then, based on that commonality. Now, when you go into the church, is everybody the same? Do we meet here because we have a commonality in our interests, in our background, in our, our hobbies? You know, all of us play the same sport. I know that's not true, right? So what is it that makes us a common people? Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only common thing we have. Now, some of us have different things that may be similar to each other, but the thing that makes us one is Jesus Christ. And so we are one people. But Peter uses all of these different descriptions to help us to understand the unity that Jesus gives us as his church. And yet the people in the church today, I think, miss that real strong bond and the emphasis on being one because we're more interested in our individual lives than we are in being the church together. And so what Peter is emphasizing here is a unified body, a unified people, a conglomerate that's brought together and bonded together as one in Jesus Christ. He is our commonality. Now, I want to make this point. 
And I think Peter makes this point indirectly here when he says we are living stones. A church cannot be made up of one stone. You cannot take one stone and build a building out of one stone. Can't happen. And so by calling us stones in the house of God, Peter is reminding us that God's purpose, or at least part of God's purpose for us as Christians, is not for us to be Christian hermits or independently religious or my Christian life is my business and mine God's business. I'm not going to talk or work with anybody else about it. Nobody else needs to know what's going on between me and God. And that is absolutely false. Because we are all stones built into one house. And therefore, the lives of each of us affects the lives of every one of us. When Paul gave us the analogy of the body and the different parts of the body, he said, even if the smallest part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. That's the way it should work because we're one, one body. And so when Peter says we are stones, we are built into the wall, that means that each one of us contributes to the strength of the church, contributes to the structure of the church, and even contributes to the aesthetic of the church and what the church looks like to other people. None of us is exempt from that. And everything we do as a living stone within that wall affects every other stone because we are bonded together in one. And so we are the building blocks that Christ uses to build his church. And without every single one of us in the place that God wants us to be, doing the function that God wants us to do, the church is not complete. Let me give you this illustration. And here, Peter is talking about stones. Remember, if you go back into Matthew chapter 16, remember Jesus questioned the disciples, and he said, who do people say that I am? And, you know, some said, oh, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, other Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, right away, he was the one who always spoke first, and he answered, well, we know you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus looked at him, and he said, flesh and blood hath not revealed to this to you, but the Holy Spirit of God has revealed this to you. And he said, from now on, I'm not going to call you Simon, which was what his given name was. He says, you are Peter. And then Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, we need to understand that phrase and the words that Jesus used. When he said, thou art Peter, the word in the Greek is petros. And the word petros means a little piece of rock. A piece of rock, small piece. So he wasn't saying, Peter, you're a giant foundation stone. No, we already have a foundation stone who is Jesus Christ. He's saying, Peter... You're a chip off the old block. You're like the block, but you're just a little piece. Okay? And then when Jesus said, but upon this rock I will build my church, the word rock that he's going to build his church on is the word Petra, not Petras. Petra is a boulder. Big difference. And so the church is not built on Peter, as many religions would believe. 
It is built on the rock, Jesus Christ. The, what Jesus was referring to when he said, upon this rock will I, will I build my church, was the truth that Peter had just stated about Jesus Christ, that he was the Messiah. He was the Savior that God had sent, and he was the living God come in the flesh. That truth is the foundation of the church. And Jesus said, on that truth, I will build my church. On that truth about myself, I will build my church. What's interesting is that when we get to 1 Peter, Peter uses a different word. He doesn't use Petra or Petros. He uses the Greek word lithos, stones, small stones. But it's not just small stones. It could be any kind of stones. And he uses the word stones to describe us as living stones that are put into the building. Obviously, we're not boulders. We don't make up the whole building. So it takes a lot of little stones to make up the building. But he also uses that word lithos, stone, when he says Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, if Jesus is the boulder, the rock, the Petra that the church is built on, why would Peter then use lithos here? Because he wants us to understand this. As living stones, little stones, we are to look like, to act like, to be like the foundation stone. And so he uses the word, same word to describe Jesus Christ as he uses to describe us as living stones because we are to be like him. There's not to be any difference in our lives than there was in Jesus' life. Now, obviously, we can't become God. We never will become God. But we are to be like God in that sense. Remember back in chapter 1, Jesus said, Be ye holy as I am holy. That was God's command to his church. And so Peter uses the same word for stones, describing Jesus as the cornerstone, as he does for us, because we are to be like the foundation stone, just on a smaller scale. We're not the foundation of the church, and the church doesn't rest on us, but the church is built with us. And if the character of the stones that build the building are different than the character of the foundation stone, the church is not going to stand. And so Jesus says, I will build my church with these stones on the truth that I am the living cornerstone. Now, Peter was just a piece of rock, right? Petros. He's one of the living stones. But you think about who Peter was and his life, his ministry. And he became a major foundation stone. He didn't replace Jesus Christ as the foundation, but he was built into that foundation. And he became the first to preach the gospel after Pentecost. He was the one right there in Acts chapter 2, and then again in Acts chapter 4, as soon as the Holy Spirit came upon them, he was preaching to the people standing outside. 3,000 people were saved because of his first sermons. He became the spokesperson for the church at the beginning. Everybody looked at Peter to lead. And if you read the history of the church in the book of Acts, where it started and how it grew, and the ministry that uh, different disciples or apostles had in the growth of the church, Peter 
dominates almost the first half of the book of Acts. It's not until you get to chapter 13 that Paul's ministry even begins, really. And yet, in our minds, we think, well, Paul, you know, he's the big one. He's the, the major prophet or the major apostle. Well, Peter was the first in, of those foundation stones, I think, that was put in place by Jesus Christ. But it doesn't make him any more important than anybody else. It's just the first piece. And that's why he, Jesus called him, you are Petros. Not just Alethos, but you are Petros. Now, Peter also uses the term house here. And I mentioned this before because a house is a place where someone lives. Now, we know that the temple, if we know anything about the temple, was built as the dwelling place of God. When God commanded Israel to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, remember when the tabernacle was set up, the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud would sit on top of that, and people knew God's presence was there at the tabernacle. The temple became representative of that as well. When people went in the tabernacle, that temple represented the dwelling place of God. That is where God, when he came to visit his people, would be. And so you would go to the temple to worship. But Peter uses this word house because, again, the temple was just the picture. We, as the people of God, now are the house of God. Or we'll use the word household. So we're not just a temple where the Spirit abides, but we are all related together. Now, it's not just God that dwells in this house called the temple or the church. It is the family of God that lives there. And who is the family of God? Believers. So the church is literally then where we live. Now, it doesn't mean you have to bring your sleeping bag and your, you know, your little pot of beans or whatever, and you've got to camp out in the church all the time. Again, it's not about the building. But the church as a whole, the people of God, is where our life should be centered. And unfortunately, that's where this whole doctrine of the church for many people breaks down, because to many believers even... The church is just something I do on Sundays, some people I meet on Sundays that I get along with, we love the fellowship, etc. And yet Peter says, no, this is the household, this is your family, this is where you should live. Your life should be centered around this group, because this is the substance of your life. Together we make up not just the house of God, but the family of God. And we should live together. Now, I mean, if you want to come to my house and sleep over, that's up to you, okay? We'll find a corner for you. But again, it's not a physical thing. It's the spiritual part of it that's the important thing. Do we really live together as a spiritual household? Or do we just fellowship once in a while when we see each other? It puts a whole new importance on the church in Christians' lives than just something you do once a week. So the, so the church is the family. Now, the spiritual house that Peter's talking about is not about different denominations. We're not a separate house from another church down the road. And when I say church, remember, I'm talking about true believers who preach the gospel and believe in the same salvation in Jesus Christ that we do. But there's no, not a different house down the street at a different church. We are all the same house. It's one temple. 
And so denominational differences do not split the church up into different households. We are still one household, one family in God's kingdom. Then when Peter starts his epistle, remember, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Five different provinces. Those people, many of them probably never saw each other because they were all over the place. And yet he's talking to these people who will never meet one another, and he's saying, you are one house, one family. Distance and physical separation didn't prevent them from being one household. And the unity of God's people transcends local and individual congregations. So when we talk about having fellowship with the house of God, we're not restricted to this group. There are many Christians out there who we can have fellowship with. I'm going to embarrass my wife a little bit, I think, because in Michigan, when we first started our church, I'm sorry, we were looking for a church. Before I became a pastor, we were looking for a church, and we had to go to the store, and so we went into the store, and my wife was going to go into the vegetable section to get her favorite stuff, and I went to the meat section to get my favorite stuff. And, and she disappeared and was gone for like 20 minutes, and I couldn't find her. And finally, I found her over in the corner of the vegetable section, and she's talking to this older lady, and they're both crying and hugging, and I was like, who is that? She goes, oh, her name is Dorothy. We just met. It's like, you just met, and you're crying and hugging? She said, well, we got talking, and we realized we're both believers, and there was just a bond. You know, and that's what Peter's talking about. We are one house, one family, and it's not restricted within these walls. Now, there's several passages in the New Testament that refer to the church as a house or a household. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Not talking about just Hebrews, not talking about Gentiles, not talking about people in Jerusalem, talking about believers. We are his house, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. First Tim- Timothy, Peter writes to, Tim- I'm sorry, Paul writes to Timothy in First Timothy 3, 15. He says, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. That's not in the building. That's with the people of God. And he says, which is the church of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth. Ephesians chapter 2. Again, Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, exactly how Peter starts, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built up together into a dwelling place, for God by the Spirit. One house, one temple, one building, one family. And I wonder if Peter and Paul corroborated on their writing so that they both were writing the same thing. I don't think they even talked to each other possibly because they weren't together much, but they had the same spirit, and so it's the same message. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul uses that same analogy of the house being built up with Jesus as the cornerstone, the teaching of the apostles at its foundation. And he uses this phrase being joined together. Together. We're not individual believers. I mean, we are in the sense that it was our individual faith that brought us to salvation in Jesus Christ. But when we are made part of the family of God, we are all built together into one house. And so while our salvation is individual, being part of the body of Christ is not. We are all one. Let me illustrate it this way. In Matthew chapter 18, if you're familiar with Jesus' teaching, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives the foundational principles for exercising church discipline against a disobedient brother within the fellowship. And he says, the first step is to go, uh, if you're the one that finds out or knows about it, go to that brother by yourself, admonish him to repent. If that doesn't work, then you go and you get two or three witnesses, and you go again. And these witnesses know about it as well, and so you admonish him to repent. And if that doesn't work, the third step is to go to the church and have the church basically represented by the elders and the leaders go to this man and exhort him to repent. And if he doesn't do it the third time, then you're to put him out of fellowship of the church and treat him as a heathen because that's the way he's living, somebody who's living in open sin. And at the end of explaining that process, Jesus says to his disciples in verses 19 and 20 in Matthew 18, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And here's the famous verse that everybody takes out of context, but it's not really out of context. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. The context is church discipline. The principle is this. Nobody alone has the ability or the authority of the church as a whole to exercise it in any degree and be effective. None of us are the church by ourselves. And so Jesus uses this principle from the Old Testament that you need two or three witnesses to verify that this is true, but then it's also the principle that the church is many into one, and the authority and the power of the church is not invested in one person, ever. So much for the Pope. I hate to say it, but that's true. His point is that the authority of Jesus Christ within the body of the church is invested in the church as a whole. And together, we function and carry out whatever it is that God wants us to do. Here, he uses the example of church discipline. And it doesn't matter if your church is made up of two or three people, or if the church is two or three thousand people. It is the church as a whole that God operates through, not one person. And so your spiritual life is not a private thing that you can keep to yourself and just pretend that you don't need anyone else to do what God has called you to do. It's impossible for you as a believer to fulfill God's will for your life apart from the rest of the church. Because God has called us to be part of the church. And while there are things you should be carrying out and doing by yourself, 
Bible reading and prayer, you know, those are examples of things you need to do individually as well as together. But there are certain things that we cannot do as believers apart from the church by ourselves. You cannot carry out the functions of the church by yourself. And so if you're not functioning as part of the household, the one body, the one house, then you're not functioning as God intended you to. That's why the writer of Hebrews exhorts us in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. He says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love to do good works. In other words, let's encourage each other through our love toward them that they'll show love back. Romans says, let's outdo one another in love. So he says, let's consider that we need to do that on a regular basis. And then in verse 25, he says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There's a reason why God wants us to be together. And when we're not, we miss the purpose of God in our lives. And we're not functioning the way God wants us to as a believer. Because we're not just individual Christians. We are all together the church of God. Now, back in 1 Peter 1, in verse 22, we saw that the demonstration of holiness that God instills within us, the clearest demonstration of holiness is for us to love one another with a fervent love. How do you love one another if you're never together? You can't. But that's not the only thing. Let me give you a list very quickly as we finish up of the other things that we are to do with one another as the church. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, we are to give preference to one another in honor. In other words, let other people go first. If you're alone, nobody else can go first. Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Romans 14, 19, we are to be building up one another. Romans 15, 7, we are to accept one another. Romans 15, 14, we're to admonish one another. Romans 16, 16, we're to greet one another. That's hard to do when you're not with somebody. 1 Corinthians 11, we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper with one another. And when we do that, we are to wait for one another. That's why, you know, we don't hand out the juice and the bread and everybody, when they get it, they can just stuff their mouth. Paul says, wait, tarry for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25, we're to care for one another. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, we are to serve one another. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, we are to bear one another's burdens. That's a big one. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, we're to be patient with one another. Ephesians chapter 19, we are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Did you know when we sing, we're not just singing to the Lord? We're encouraging each other. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, we're to be subject to one another. Colossians 3.13, we're to forgive one another. Colossians 3.16, we're to teach and admonish one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.13, live in peace with one another. And the list goes on and on and on and on. That's not the end of it. I lost my last page. That's okay because we're finishing up. But you get the idea, right? One another. 
one with each other. We can't function as the church apart from each other. And so Peter gives us this admonition here in chapter 2, in verse 5, he says, You are lively stones, you are built up a spiritual house, one spiritual household, one temple, all functioning together. You are one chosen generation, one royal priesthood, one holy nation, one peculiar people. And the commonality that binds us together is much more important than anything else that might define you as an individual. Anything. We are the church. That should be one of the greatest privileges as a believer, but also one of the greatest responsibilities. Because we have to function together. And then the function, he mentions in verse 9, I'm going to stop here, but he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. He uses that same uh, reference in verse 5. He said, you are as lively stones built up a spiritual house. What's the next phrase he uses? A holy priesthood. So since we are one household, one temple, one priesthood, then how should we function? And we have to look at the priests to really understand that. And we're going to start that probably in two weeks because Andy Gleiser is going to be with us next week. But we can't miss this foundational principle of the church. And I think too often Christians forget this unity that we think is just getting along with one another. No, it's a lot more than that. We are to live with each other. I mean, literally, our spiritual life is dependent upon other Christians in the body of Christ. We'll stop there for today. Let's, we'll pick this up next time. We'll look at the priesthood of believers and how that should affect how we function, not just in the church, but in our lives as well. So we'll stop. Let's have a word of prayer as we close today. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have given us these instructions in your word. And Lord, you've put us all together in the same family, but also in the same temple. Lord, we together are your temple and you are to be dwelling there. We know that you dwell in each one of us, but Lord, even how we live should reflect that this is your dwelling place. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us to live the way we should. We know that we are not our own. You have bought us with a price, and therefore we belong to you. So I pray that you'd help us to keep that in mind as we go about our daily lives, that everything we might do would glorify you, would reflect on your nature and your character, and show people not who we are, but who you are so that they truly might be able to experience your love and the salvation that you offer as we have. Bless us now. We thank you for this lesson and this challenge, and I pray that you just help us now to put this into practice in an everyday way, helping each other, exhorting, comforting, encouraging, building each other up because we are one house. Again, we just praise you for your goodness, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.